Welcome to Counter Narratives, a podcast about multicultural heritage collections, storytelling, and representation in galleries, libraries, archives, museums, and beyond. This podcast is part of a larger project to highlight the work of the Andrew W. Mellon Cultural Heritage Fellows based at the Rare Book School. I am your host, Gina DuVernay, librarian, archivist, and cultural consultant. On this episode of the podcast, we will be talking to Margarita Vargas Betancourt, the Latin American and Caribbean Special Collections Librarian at the University of Florida, and Patrice Green, the inaugural curator for African American Collections at Penn State University. Margarita Vargas Betancourt is the Latin American and Caribbean Special Collections Librarian at the University of Florida. She is a member of the first cohort of the Mellon Rare Book School Fellowship for Diversity, Inclusion, and Cultural Heritage. Her latest co-authored publication, Contesting Colonial Library Practices of Accessibility and Representation, in the book Archives and Special Collections as Sites of Constantation, obtained the 2022 LASA Archives Section Award for Best Article. Margarita, hi. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Gina. Hi there. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, I come from Mexico and I came to the U.S. to do a Ph.D. in Latin American studies. And um, I did my studies on colonial indigenous women from Mexico and finding their stories in the archives was very inspirational for me because I could see the resilience, their strength, even in the middle of a, a colonial environment. And that has always inspired my work. Wonderful. Well, what collection would you like to discuss with us today? The collection that I would like to discuss is very dear to me, and it is the COVID-19 Florida Farm Workers Collection. This collection while on sabbatical, and the collection documents the impact that the pandemic had on Florida farm workers. The collection spans from 2020 to the summer of 2021. And this is the first 100 digital percent collection that we create at the University of Florida. And actually, I think it's one of the firsts that we don't acquire, but we created. How this collection came to be is that in the summer of 2020, I got a grant from the UF Center for Arts, Migration, and Entrepreneurship, and with the funds, I hired a, an undergraduate student. And the undergraduate student first created a database of community-based organizations that were working with farm workers in Florida, and then she started following their social media and capturing their videos and their posts. She also kept on looking for articles in newspapers and on TV. And she also, we also contacted the UF's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences, and they sent us the material that they had produced to support farm workers and farmers during the pandemic. Wow, that's, that's impressive. Uh, what are your favorite parts of this collection? Some parts of this collection are hard to talk about, but um, the first one would be the YouTube videos. There was a farm worker who would film himself in the fields harvesting strawberries. So you could see, uh, I, I, I never knew exactly how strawberries got to my fridge, but they, they put them straight into the box. 
and he would talk about where he came from. He was from Mexico. In one episode, he showed his wife, and uh, he always seemed very happy, and that really impressed me. There are some other videos that are very difficult to watch and that are actually difficult to describe. There was a ceremony at the Consulate of Mexico for the Mexicans who died of COVID in Florida and whose bodies were going to be sent back to Mexico. That was very moving, um, but very hard. There are other videos that show mariachi bands going into the fields. The mariachis were trying to cheer up the farm workers because unlike many of us who had the privilege to stay and work from home, Florida farm workers had to be on the field. So these mariachi vans were playing to cheer them up. And those videos are also very moving. And uh, I also really like the social media because the, the uh, community-based organizations documented carefully like the, the, and announced through their media the food drives and during Christmas 2020, the toy drives that they organized. Later, they started organizing vaccination events and producing flyers and other type of content to promote vaccination. So I would say those were my favorite parts of the collection. Margarita, why do you think this collection is important? I think this collection is very important because with it, we want to challenge the misrepresentation of immigrants and of farm workers in specific. We want to show the real stories, like their challenges, their fears, their struggles, but also their victories and their successes. And we also wanted to show with this collection the importance of the community-based organizations during the pandemic. They were the ones that supported farm worker communities. And because of these organizations, the farm worker communities were able to, to remain resilient and to survive. Now, in terms of my professional growth, this collection is important because it allowed me to fulfill one of the requirements of the fellowship of the Mellon RBS Fellowship for Diversity, uh, which is to create community-driven initiatives and projects that document minoritized communities. So the, the COVID-19 Florida Farm Workers Collection was a seed project for something bigger. In the fall of 2022, the University of Florida and the University of Miami partnered with two community-based organizations, the Florida Farm Workers Associations and the Rural Women's Health Project. And we got a grant in which librarians and archivists are going to, and students, our students too, are going to work with these two community-based organizations. We're going to do oral histories that show an eagle view of their communities. And we're going to also, as archivists, work with them to find ways of documenting, documenting farm workers' stories in a safe and respectful way. So, Margarita, how is the IMLS-funded project going? Well, it's going very well, Gina. The first thing we did is we visited the Rural Women's Health Project headquarters here in Gainesville, Florida, and we saw the uh, photonovelas, which is a type of graphic novel that they produce to educate people, and we adopted their way of using storytelling to promote our project. We produced a video novela called Tell Me Your Story, Cuéntame Tu Historia, which is now in YouTube. And we have shown it to um, farm workers at the Florida Farm Workers Association Posada. That's their, their um, Christmas party, their holiday party. And uh, we have started attending community events to create a bond with these communities. 
That is wonderful. What effect do you hope your work will have on people? I hope that uh, my work and our work, because it's a collective work, will allow people to see immigrants as people, not as criminals or victims, but as human beings. People who came here to the U.S. looking for just for a better life for their children and people who are very, very important for the economic activities in Florida, uh, especially agriculture. And I would like everybody to see immigrants as people who suffer, but people who also thrive and succeed. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing. This was wonderful information, and uh, we, we appreciate all the work you do. Next up, we have Patrice Green. She is the inaugural curator for African-American collections at Penn State University. Green holds master's degrees in public history and library and information science from the University of South Carolina and views special collections librarianship as an ideal combination of both fields. At Penn State, she manages the Charles L. Bloxon Collection of African Americana and the African Diaspora. Additionally, she develops and stewards collections that center Black life, enhance learning experiences, and cultivate Black memory. Patrice, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about uh, Charles Bloxon and his collections. Yeah, so Mr. Bloxon um, was actually an alum of Penn State. And one thing I want to start with is when he was younger, he was told that Black people, especially Black people in the United States, don't really have a history. So Mr. Blocks was born in 1933. Um, there's a lot going on at the time. We've got the Great Depression, um, and we're trying to figure out how life is going to continue for a lot of people. And for him to be told that at such a young age, amongst all the other strife that's going on at the time, I can't imagine what he went through. Um, he wanted to prove that teacher wrong, and as he um, grew up and got older, he began collecting and I mean, he collected any and everything he could that was about or by black people, usually in the United States, but he got further into the diaspora, especially out in the Caribbean um, and with a particular interest in Haiti. So one, it's important what we say to young people, um, but two, uh, this collection really serves as a cornerstone of black knowledge. And I say that because he collected the good, the bad, and the ugly. When I bring students into the Bloxing collection at Penn State, um, I try to give them a little bit of a content warning. I say, hey, we have things like, you know, chains and shackles, right, um, that were placed on enslaved people. Uh, we have things written by people who have fallen out of favor in the public. Um, we have so many materials that use very, very um, not so great language that at the time was, well, at the time also wasn't great, but especially now it's, it's very, very, um, it's very disturbing um, to read some of those materials. So uh, using those collections and really looking around to see what we've made, it's incredibly humbling 
to see the legacy of, you know, Black intellectualism in that room. The other, there's another Bloxon collection at uh, Temple University. I believe it's a bigger collection. There are more artifacts and more art, but it has the same kind of story, right? There's so much material that talks about what Black people have created, what we've thought, what we've felt, what we've experienced with our existence in this country and around the world. And for a people who were literally not, you know, allowed to be literate or allowed to know ourselves, um, it's incredibly important that we show this off at any point that we can. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Are there other collections at Penn State that focus on Black life and culture? Uh, Yeah, a couple. We have uh, more general and special collections anyway. We have a more general Black history and literature collection. Um, So yes, things written by Mr. Bloxon, but this is the canon, right? This is our Toni Morrison's and our Darlene Clark Hines and all of these other wonderful people that had contributed to, you know, Black expression. Um, We also have this newer kind of collection. It's digital and we wanted to create kind of a digital buckets for um, content to go in that we call the Black History and Visual Culture Collection, because we kept finding lots of different things in throughout our collections in the university archives, especially that were about the Black student experience or that were about, you know, Black life in Pennsylvania or something, you know, to that nature. It either wasn't described at all, it wasn't cataloged. It was an unsolved mystery of some sort, um, or it was cataloged and the metadata just wasn't very, you know, expressive. So we had our wonderful, wonderful team of people go in, um, get those materials digitized and have them really, really well described so people can find them when they look for them in the catalog. And another thing is we are really big on artist books at Penn State. um, And hopefully we can you know, grow our collection of Black artist books and artist books about Black people um, because it's been wonderful to see how we create. That is wonderful. Um, can you tell us how these collections are used? Yes. Uh, so we mostly use the collections for uh, teaching and learning. That is one of our, you know, primary goals and it's in our strategic plan, um, not just for the libraries, but also for the university. And using special collections really enhances that experience for students who can visit um, special collections or for other people who may have something like a traveling trunk where they take materials to students, especially in K-12 audiences, um, that enhances their learning experience as well. And using those and invoking experiential learning helps people not only remember what they do, Um, or what they did in the class, but it gives them a better perspective of the research process. So that is the biggest thing that we're going for. We need you to see how things um, and how ideas are formed from beginning to end and then how they're maintained and how they're rethought and how they're reformed. So those are some of the ways that we use these collections. Sometimes it's just for display. We have exhibits that go up. Um, we have these smaller exhibits with the Bloxon collection that I have a grad, student, grad assistant student, Glennis Reed, who is phenomenal, who creates these you know, very, very specific exhibits about things. She has one coming up on Black feminist embodiments. She has one out right now that's about Haiti, and they're just phenomenal. Um, and these are just some of the ways that we kind of make use of those collections that we bring in. We don't want things to come in just so they can sit on the shelf somewhere. 
Absolutely right. That is correct. Why is Black memory work important to you? I talked a little bit ago about this collection or the Bloxon collections being kind of a cornerstone of Black knowledge. And what I mean by that is that we can go to it for just about anything, any questions that we have about how Black life has progressed, especially in this country since its founding, and how we are able to you know, be resilient, even though that's a word that is getting us exhausted at the time, but we're able to be resilient throughout all the trials and tribulations that Black people experienced in this country. And it makes me think of things we talk in public history, like a sense of place, like tangible and intangible heritage. It gives us an idea of storytelling and the legitimacy of the stories that we tell. Um, Beth Patton talks about epistemicide in some of her work. I think she's at Syracuse, or at least she was. Um, and by that, I just mean like the willful destruction of knowledge of a certain population. And we see that happen with any population that immigrates anywhere, but especially populations that are enslaved and forced um, to move otherwhere. They're kidnapped, they're taken, they're abducted, and their knowledge is squashed. Don't speak your language, don't do these customs, don't do these dances, don't sing these songs. Those are all forms of epistemicide. And then come in and learn our way to do it. And that's very that's a very Western kind of thing to do. So Black memory work is important to me because it gives us a chance to not only know ourselves, but to know who our people are, to know why your grandma has all those bottles hanging, you know, the glass bottles hanging on a tree in her yard in Louisiana. It helps us know why we do the things that we do, why my grandma sticks a broomstick outside of her door. Got to keep the witches out, you know. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, Black memory work helps us with. And it gives us community and we deserve that. And we deserve to have that safety and that security in knowing who we are. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, what advice would you leave for young uh, memory workers? Uh, my advice is that you can collect. Um, it doesn't have to be this $15,000 book. It doesn't have to be like a very, very fancy like Fabergé egg or anything like that. It can be books that you find interesting um, it can be your own materials. I say start with yourself and start where you are. You have collections. You have baby pictures. You have certificates from moving from the third grade to the fourth grade. All of these things, even though we may throw them away later, they're important and they tell your life story. And these are things that are not in ancestry yet. These are things that we can't really look up yet um, because you have access to those and it's your story. We don't all have the privilege of having our own stories or pieces of our own stories with us. Some of us immigrated, some of us grew up in, you know, unstable homes, and some of us are affected by, you know, natural disasters, um, which are, you know, part of climate change and part of environmental racism. And that's a whole nother, you know, kind of situation. But I just want to say that your story, whether you tell it oral history, you're just recording your grandma talking while she's telling a story, um, and your knowledge is important and it's worthy and it's yours to kind of cultivate. So whether you know it or not, you have a collection. You just have to decide what you want to be in it. Um, and Black history is American history. It's diasporic history and it's world history. Um, that is the advice I want to leave with young memory workers. Oh, thank you. Indeed it is. What's next for you and for these collections? 
Um, again, going back to the artist books, um, there's a very prominent Black artist bookmaker, um, Tia Blassingame. She's amazing. She's of the Primrose Press. Um, and I just hope every time she drops a new book, uh, we can um, collect it. And they are very, very special. She created um, one called Black Handbook. I think that's one of her most recent ones. It's made of these beautiful woodcuts and comes in a gorgeous container. Um, and it's just lovely to look at and to think about someone taking not only the care to tell the story, but the care to make the components to go with the storytelling. Um, that's always fun. And of course, we always um, go with the continued trend of using you know, special collections for teaching and learning, but also doing better outreach with other disciplines, bringing in our STEM friends um, and saying, yes, you know, we mostly work with the humanities, but our history of science stuff, you know, you got to come see it. Um, working more with donors, Guy Bluford is one of our wonderful, wonderful alumni at Penn State. He was the first black astronaut, um, also the first in a night launch. Um, that's not important, but I was a space camp counselor once upon a time. So I think it's a cool fact. But, you know, getting to meet him and getting to know him and getting to listen to his story about being an astronaut in the 70s and in the 80s and flying on the shuttle. Um, those are some of the stories that we kind of want to take into consideration to maybe get recorded later on. Um, so me personally, I want to do more mentoring, um, especially with people wanting to work with archival collections, because we we need this work. We need to know that we can preserve the materials that we have. Well, Patrice, it was just a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And that wraps up our talk today on Counter Narratives. We want to thank all of our guests. This episode was brought to you by the Rare Book School, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and Ali Alvis, book historian and cataloger at Tight Punch Matrix, and also podcast media consultant Kelsey Brown. Thank you so much again for joining us for this episode of Counter Narratives. Until next time, take care. My body.